This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Aquinas' real distinction and its role and its causal proof of God's existence um, and the antitestantia. Now, a cosmological argument is one that argues from the obvious existence of something other than God for the existence of God as its first efficient cause. This sort of reasoning can be vitiated by two main types of objection. The first, which I will refer to as the self-sufficiency self -sufficiency objection, argues that the obvious existence of the thing the cosmolo cosmological argument refers to does not need an explanation in terms of an efficient cause. It just exists, and there is no need for an efficient cause for its existence. See, for instance, the objections to Aquinas' first way from the Newtonian idea of inertial motion. The second type of objection, which I refer to as the infinite regress objection, argues that even if the obvious existence of the thing in question does need an efficient cause to sustain it, that cause need not be God, but maybe an entity other than God, which in turn can also be caused by something other than God, and so on to infinity without ever needing a first cause, which one might uh, plausibly identify with God. In this paper, I will argue that Aquinas' thesis of the real distinction of creatures and the identity thereof in God plausibly takes care of both types of objections, provided we have a proper understanding both of the thesis itself and its import on the notion of efficient causality. So I will start the discussion with the thesis of real distinction, in particular with Aquinas' famous argument for uh, famous argument for it in his De Antetacentia. And then I will consider how this thesis is cashed out in the causal proof for the existence of God in the same passage. Aquinas' famous intellectus essentia argument in his De Antetacentia is taken by some of his modern commentator, commentators, most, no, most notably by Anthony Kenny, to be one of Aquinas' most serious attempts to prove his fundamental metaphysical thesis of the real distinction of essence and existence in creatures, which is obviously the best way to stave off the self-sufficiency objection. But in fact, this argument is only a part of a larger argumentation, which as a whole intends to prove the real distinction of essence and existence in creatures and the identity thereof of God. Thus, the intellectus essentia argument itself only attempts to prove the real distinction between essence and existence at least in some obvious cases, which then is the starting point of the larger argumentation for the entire thesis. So this, the larger argumentation seeks to establish that if essence and existence are, a, are identical in some case, then they can be identical only in a unique case, from which then it follows that they must be distinct in everything else. Finally, from the real distinction thus established, in everything else, the argument argues that the obvious existence of these things entails the actual existence of that unique cause of their existence in which essence and existence are not distinct, namely the existence of God. So let us first deal with the intellectus essentia argument, which is embodied in the following couple of lines in Aquinas' text. 
whatever is not included in the understanding of an essence of quiddity is coming to it from outside, entering into composition with the essence, for no essence can be understood without its parts. But every essence can be understood without knowing about its existence, for I can understand what a man or a phoenix is and not know whether it actually exists in the nature of things. Therefore, it is clear that existence is distinct from essence, unless perhaps there is a thing whose quiddity is its own existence. In his controversial book, Aquinas and Being, Anthony Kenny launched a two-pronged attack against Aquinas' argument. On the first prong, he tried to establish that if Aquinas in his argument was talking about existence in the sense of specific existence expressed by the Freudian existential quantifier, then he was either talking nonsense or essence and existence are distinct both in God and in creatures. Kenneth's reasoning is based on the idea that Aquinas' argument can plausibly be understood as claiming in its premises that while we know, for instance, what is meant by the word phoenix, namely a mythical bird that sometimes bursts out, and bursts out in flames and is later reborn from its ashes, we just do not know if there is such a thing. That is, we do not know if the word is true of something. Indeed, we actually know that the word phoenix is not true of anything, for nothing is a phoenix. Uh, which is precisely the Freudian quantificational interpretation of the notion of existence. So there are no phoenixes, simply means nothing is a phoenix. Okay. However, as Kenny correctly concludes on, um, as Kenny correctly con concludes on this, on this interpretation, Aquinas' argument would either amount to nonsense or it would prove too much. For on this understanding of the notion of existence, the thesis of the real identity of God's essence and existence would amount to something like the ungrammatical gibberish. God's essence is an inverted E, right? That is the existential quantifier. On the other hand, if we assume that the argument is not nonsensical and works, then it must work in the, it must work in the same way for the term God as it does for the term Phoenix. But then the argument proves too much for them in the same way. We know what the term God means, but we do not know whether it is true of anything, for we do not know whether there is a God. Thus, if this is what the distinction of essence and existence means, then they are distinct in God just as well as they are in creatures. On the other prong of his attack, Kenny argues that if Aquinas was talking about existence in the sense of individual being, meaning actuality, corresponding to the Freudian notion of Wirklichkeit, then essence and existence are identical both in God and in creatures. For then, we have to say that justice for God to be actual is for him to be God. So for a dog, say Fido, to be actual is for, is for Fido to be a dog. Therefore, if this is what the identity of essence and existence means, then Fido's essence is just as identical with his existence as God's essence is with his existence. Thus, Kenneth concludes, either way, the intellectus essentia argument fails to establish Aquinas' desired conclusion. However, as I have argued in more detail elsewhere, 
Kenny's objection fails on several counts. Um, I actually have this uh, um, essay review on Kenny's book in um, the International Philosophical Quarterly in 2004. And there I <laughs> did more uh, work of uh, taking Kenny's arguments apart. Okay. But uh, here um, uh, are the few points that I need to make um, to establish why Kenny's objections do not work as stated here. In the first place, Aquinas simply does not have a notion equivalent to the Frigean notion of an existential quantifier. In fact, a notion that would come closest to this notion as Aquinas is in, in Aquinas's conceptual arsenal would be regarded by him not as a concept of existence, but as a signum quantitatis, namely a signum particulare, and the syncategorematic concept expressed by the Latin terms quidum, aliquid, or their equivalents, which render a proposition to which they are prefixed a particular as opposed to a universal, singular, or indefinite proposition, as in quidum homeless animal, some man is an animal, as opposed to every man is an animal, Socrates is an animal, animal, or a man is an animal, respectively. So it's just a sign of quantity indicating whether it's a particular, universal, etc., or indefinite proposition. In any case, um, Kenneth's reason for holding that Aquinas would have to use in his argument the notion of specific existence and correspondingly the notion of nominal as opposed to real essence, this is unjustified assumption that Aquinas would take a phoenix by definition to be a fictitious bird as we do. However, from his argument, as well as from the parallel text of his commentary on the sentences, it is quite clear that Aquinas uses this example as the illustration of a real but ephemeral natural phenomenon, like a lunar eclipse or a rainbow, the essence of which we could know perfectly well in terms of a scientific definition without knowing whether this kind of thing actually exists at the present time. Um, in fact, uh, uh, in Isidore of Seville's etymology, um, Phoenix is described, I think, uh, um, between um, so two real birds, seagulls and pelicans, or that, that sort of bird. So um, just as a piece of zoology. Um, so Kelly's objection definitely fails on the first prong on account of simply missing Aquinas' point in the argument taking it to deal with nominal rather than real essences and operating with a notion of existence that is alien to Aquinas' thought. But Kenny's objection fails on its second prong as well, even if the interpretation it involves is somewhat closer to Aquinas' original intention. For Kenny bases his objection on the false assumption that the distinctness of essence and existence would have to mean that it is possible to have one without the other. And so he argues, since it is impossible to have a dog's existence without its essence, for a dog cannot be, cannot be without being a dog, essence and existence would have to be the same also in the, case, also in the case of this creature. However, this assumption is obviously false, for it is clearly possible to have distinct yet necessarily co-occurring items in reality. 
For example, it is clear that the triangularity of any particular triangle, it's having three angles, is not the same as its trilaterality, it's having three sides, um, unless sides and angles are the same items. But it is also clear that one cannot have a particular triangularity without a par particular tri trilaterality. So we have two really distinct items here, which are nevertheless inseparable in reality. Again, this material, this particular material form, say the substantial form of this particular block of wood, cannot exist without the matter it informs, and the matter it informs cannot exist, at least in Aquinas' conception, without this form actually informing it, since for both of them to be is nothing but for this particular block of wood to be, right? They share the same existence, the same sub act of substantial being, just differently. The block of wood is what that which is uh, the uh, form of the um, block of the wood is that by which the um, block of wood is, and uh, the matter of the block of wood is in which the form is, okay? As in its subject. Okay. Still, Aquinas would take this form and this matter to be really distinct items in reality, since they are precisely those mutually exclusive, non-overlapping essential parts of the substance of this block of wood into which it has to be analyzed in Aristotle's hylomorphous metaphysics. Therefore, Tachakemi, real, real distinction does not have to mean real separability, which finishes off the other problem of his attempt. So now let's get down to the real argument. Accordingly, to avoid the misunderstandings involved in Kenny's criticism, we have to understand the argument as dealing with real individual essences and arguing for the real mind-independent distinction from real individual acts of existence, at least in those cases in which we have knowledge of the essence without knowing whether it is actually present in any actually existing individual. Therefore, taking C to be any arbitrarily chosen thing whose nature is known, but whose existence is not known, the gist of the argument may be reconstructed as follows. The nature of C is known, the existence of C is not known. Therefore, the nature of C is not the existence of C. Luce clarius, as the medieval authors would say, as um, clearer than light or uh, brighter than light, okay. Um, in fact, if we name the individualized nature of C by the proper name M, and its individualized act of existence by the proper name E, then this argument may be regarded as an instance of a, a valid argument form in predicate logic. So N is K and E is not K, therefore E is not ident identical with N. It's very easy to um, visualize because if E were identical with N, then we could derive the contradiction that the same item is both known and not known, right? Both K and not K. Um, so uh, accordingly, in this reconstruction, the argument is certainly immune to Kenny's criticism 
Indeed, it may appear to be absolutely uncontroversial. However, the 14th century nominalist philosopher John Buridan attacked the argument precisely in this reconstruction on account of the logical peculiarities of the intentional verb it involves. The intentional verb being the verb know, um, which is intentional in the sense, um, and Buridan, this is how Buridan actually defines intentional verbs as verbs that signify the acts of uh, the cognitive soul. So knowing, uh, knowing, believing, imagining, mm, remembering, wishing, etc., etc. All these would be intentional verbs, which have their own interesting logical peculiarities. One of which is that um, apparently, in the context of such verbs, the substitutivity of identicals breaks down. Uh, just think of um, Oedipus's case. He wanted to marry Jocasta, and Jocasta was his mother. Yet he didn't want to marry Jocasta. Um, he didn't want to marry his his mother, right? So that was the whole point of the story that he didn't want to. Uh, he wanted to avoid marrying his mother, but not knowing that uh, Jocasta was his mother, he wanted to marry Jocasta, right? So this is a clear case, clear cut case in which. Um, in the context of an intentional verb, the, um, um, the substitutivity of identicals breaks down. But this is going to be precisely um, uh, the point of Buridan's objection. Buridan takes, um, takes on Aquinas's argument in his questions on Aristotle's metaphysics. In the first place, in the following passage, he reconstructs the argument precisely in the way I presented it. Uh, I presented it above as an objection to his own position, which is going to answer after his own determination of the issue. So this is his reconstruction of uh, Aquinas's argument. I can have scientific knowledge of roses or thunder, and yet I may not know whether there is a rose or whether there is thunder. Therefore, if one of these is known and the other is unknown to me, then it follows that the one is not the same as the other. It is noteworthy in this reconstruction that Buridan is absolutely clear on the point of the argument that Kenny missed, namely that it is to prove the thesis of real distinction concerning the real essences of scientifically known but ephemeral natural phenomena whose actual existence may not be known at any given time despite our scientific knowledge of their nature. Buridan's criticism is based on the well-known phenomenon of the breakdown of the principle of the substitutivity of identicals in intentional context. After all, I can clearly know something qua f and not know it qua g, even if it is both f and g, for I simply don't know that it is that this f is also a g. Thus, it seems that as long as we can know the same item qua some essence, but not qua some act of existence. It is quite possible for us to know the essence of a certain thing without knowing whether it exists or not, despite the fact that its essence and existence are the same. Therefore, Aquinas's argument fails to establish its desired conclusion, the real distinction of essence and existence of a thing on the basis of the fact that we may know its essence without knowing its existence. 
However, this does not have to be the end of the story for Aquinas. In fact, if we take a closer look at Aquinas's actual formulation of the argument, we have to notice something that is entirely neglected in the version of it criticized by Birida. Namely, Aquinas is talking about parts of the essence without which it cannot be understood. What can he possibly mean by this? And what is the relevance of this to the validity of the argument? Since according to Aquinas, the essence or quiddity of a thing is what is signified in it by its quiddative definition. And the essence of a thing in and of itself is not a conglomerate of several distinct items. By the parts of his essence, he means whatever is signified precisely by the parts of the quiddative definition of the thing. Okay, and I have a note here. Uh, let me see if it's, okay. So if you uh, check out uh, his uh, discussion of logical intentions of essence um, in um, chapter four in the uh, Charbois edition of uh, Aquinas' text, he makes this point quite, quite clear. Now, in fact, since on, on his interpretation, the definition is not primarily a linguistic expression, but an intention, that is, a con that is a concept of the mind expressed by the corresponding linguistic expression, rendering this expression meaningful, we can say that on Aquinas', on Aquinas conception, having scientific quiditative knowledge about a thing is having in mind its quiditative concept expressible by a scientific quiditative definition. In this context, therefore, we need to distinguish between merely having some, no matter how vague and confused concept of a thing, resulting from the mind's first spontaneous abstractive act, and having its quantitative concept, which is a clear and distinct articulate concept, resulting from scientific inquiry into the nature of the thing. In fact, we have this um, discussion beautifully uh, laid out by uh, Kajata in uh, uh, question one of his question commentary on Aquinas's De Antetensia. So having this sort of quantitative concept therefore means clearly knowing its implications. For instance, if I have the clear and distinct quantitative concept of diamonds as being tetrahedrally crystallized pieces of carbon, then on account of having that concept, as well as the concept of electric conductivity, I know just as well that diamonds are poor conductors as opposed, say, to graphite on account of this different um, crystalline structure. Now, what does all this mean concerning the validity of Aquinas' argument and its Buridanian criticism? Concerning Buridan's criticism, we should note that the breakdown of the substitutivity of identicals in intentional contexts is conditioned on the logical independence of the concepts in terms of which one and the same thing is conceived, known, or understood. This is why it is possible for me to know, for example, my father and not know the man approaching this Zerisalem's old example um, and the uh, sophisticis elenchis. And so, uh, and not know the man approaching, even if the man approaching is actually my father. 
for I may certainly have the recognition of him in terms of the concept whereby I conceive of him as my father, while lacking the recognition of him insofar as I may recognize him as the man approaching, insofar as having the recognition of this person would mean being able to give an adequate answer to a question asking about the identity of this person. But this is, this is so because the two acts of cognition in question are logically independent. My, whence I may perfectly well have the one without the other, right? That the person approaching uh, happens to be my father. These are logically completely coincidental, right? The two concepts are distinct and independent uh, from one another. From one another. However, if the concepts of or uh, concepts or acts of cognition are not logically independent, when I cannot have the one without the other, then the situation is radically different. If I have the scientific concept of a rainbow, say, as being the refraction of light on water suspended in air, then I cannot know a rainbow qua rainbow without knowing it at the same time qua the refraction of light on whatever is uh, on water suspended in air. To be sure, before forming the scientific concept, I can certainly, I certainly have some vague and confused knowledge of it as some colorful arch in the sky without knowing it qua the refraction of light on water, of, um, refraction of light on water suspended in air. However, once I have formed its quidditative concept, I cannot have knowledge of the same thing without knowing the implications of its quidditative concept. But then the situation would have to be similar with the notions of essence and existence, provided we are talking about the clear and distinct scientific understanding of a thing's essence, which involves having the articulate quidditative concept of a thing and knowing its logical implications. For in this situation, if the existence of the thing were the same as the essence of the thing, or using Aquinas' phrase, if it were a part of the essence of the thing, then this would mean that having the quantitative cognition of the thing would entail also knowing its cognition in terms of its existence. That is to say, we could not have its quantitative concept without knowing that it actually exists. Indeed, this is precisely what Aquinas hypothetically concedes in the conclusion of, the, uh, of this argument. Therefore, it is clear that existence is distinct from essence unless perhaps there is a thing whose quiddity is its own existence. That is to say, if there is a thing whose essence and existence are the same, then having a clear and distinct cognition of the thing's essence would immediately give us the knowledge that the thing actually exists, which is the exact reason why Aquinas would say that although God's existence is self-evident in itself, that is, it would be knowable a priori by anyone with a clear and distinct cognition of divine essence, still it is not self-evident to us, namely human beings in our natural state, for in this state, we just cannot have the clear and distinct cognition of divine essence that would allow us to realize the self-evident character of his existence. This is precisely why we need an a posteriori causal, uh, causal proof for his, uh, for his existence from the existence of those things whose existence is evident to us, his creatures. However, even if the existence of God 
uh, of God's creatures is quite evident to us, it is not so evident that they are God's creatures at all, namely that their existence even calls for a cause to sustain it. And that um, ultimately that sustain, sustaining cause has to be the cause of all creation, namely God. To establish these points in terms of a proper understanding of Aquinas' Aristotelian notion of efficient causality, we need a little background. Aquinas in his brilliant, succinct summary of Aristotle's doctrine, De Principius Naturae, distinguishes among others, the following modes of efficient causes. Some are actual causes, others are potential. Again, some are per se, others per accidents. Again, some are particular, others are universal. And finally, some are proximate and others are remote. The first distinction between actual and potential causes distinguish an agent that merely has a certain capacity to act in a certain way from an agent that is actively using that capacity, uh, capacity in actual operation. For instance, a doctor on vacation is a merely potential cause with regard to healing. For even if he can heal, um, even for, for even then he can heal, but does not. By contrast, the same doctor actually practicing his art of medicine is an actual cause actively exercising his ability to heal. The second distinction between per se and per causes distinguishes between how various causes are conceived and are accordingly denominated in a particular causal relation. For instance, if our doctor also happens to be a pianist, think Albert Schweitzer, then of course a patient whom he has just cured can truthfully say that a pianist cured her, but everybody would assume that it is a mere coincidence that the person who cured her uh, happened to be a pianist, for it was not by his music that he cured her. Or conversely, a concert goer can truthfully say that um, at the concert, a doctor played the piano. Nevertheless, everybody would take it to be a mere coincidence that the pianist happened to have a medical degree as it, as it is causally irrelevant to his musical abilities. Again, when I see a sugar cube, I certainly see a sweet thing. And when I taste it, I taste the white thing. But of course, in these examples, the features whereby I perceive it, that is whereby it affects my senses causing its perception, are not the features whereby it is denominated. It is not its taste that affects my sight, and it is not its color that affects my taste. In short, in these cases, the same cause is denominated in terms of its merely coincidental in the given causal relationship, causally irrelevant features. Thus, in these cases, we have described peroxidance causes. By contrast, if I say that I see a white thing or I taste a sweet thing, then I am denominating the cause of my perceptions from its causally relevant, uh, my, from its causally relevant features. Thus, I am describing per se causes. In general, in a given causal relation, an efficient cause is conceived and denominated as a non-coincidental per se cause of its per se effect if in that causal relation, both the cause and the effect are denominated in terms of their causally relevant features. 
active and passive powers, if we are denominating potential causes, and actual actions and passions, if we are denominating actual causes. Otherwise, the cause and the effect are denominated as peroxidants or coincidental cause and effect. Now, since the agent or efficient cause is what actualizes its effect and the patient is its effect getting or being actualized, there are four important conclusions that immediately follow from this description. First, the coincidence of per se and peroxidants causes. Since this is a distinction made in terms of how something is conceived and accordingly denominated, the same thing and the same causal relation can be denominated either as a per se or as a peroxidants cause, depending on whether it is denominated in terms of its causally relevant feature or not, as should be clear even from the examples. Second, the necessity of per se causality, since the agent is a thing that has an active power and ability to act, on account of which it is capable of bringing into actuality something, the patient in some respect, namely in that respect in which it is in potency to become actual, the action of the agent and the actualization of the patient are the same process. As Aquinas put it, action and passion are not two motions, but they are one and the same motion. For insofar as it is from the agent, it is said to be action. And insofar as it is in the patient, it is said to be passion. But then if the act of the agent as such and the act of the patient as such are one and the same in reality, but distinct only as to how they are conceived, then the one cannot be without the other in reality, even if the one can be conceived without it being conceived as the other. For one and the same thing cannot be there and not be there, no matter how it is conceived. Therefore, the act of the per se cause cannot be there without the act of the per se effect. That is to say, the per se effect of a per se cause has to be there as long as the agent is acting and the patient is receiving its action. For the action and the reception are one and the same process of actualization inherent in the patient coming from the agent. For example, there is illumination if and only if an illuminating thing actually illuminates a thing being illuminated. Clearly, and no matter how luminous thing is not an illuminating thing, unless it illuminates something, and an illuminable thing is actually illuminated only if, in, only if an illuminating thing actually illuminates it. In Latin, illuminans illuminat illuminatum. What can be more necessary than this? The third conclusion is the, is the, uh, the third conclusion is the irreflexivity of per se causality. This is actually Aquinas's uh, sub argument in his first and second ways of proving God's existence in the Summa Theologiae. Although he fails to mention that this conclusion and the reasoning backing it up concern only per se causes and effects, because the prospective theology students for whom he wrote his textbook could reasonably be expected to know this, as opposed to modern scholars leading to a number of futile objections in the contemporary literature. Now, since the per se agent or efficient cause um, is active, that is, 
um, is in actuality in precisely that respect in which the per se patient is passive, that is in potentiality or in a say, state of being receptive of the agent's action. One and the same thing cannot be the per se cause of itself, for that would mean that it would have to be an agent and patient, active and passive, that's actual and potential in the same respect and in the same way, which is impossible for them, it would have to be and not be in the same respect, which is an explicit contradiction. The fourth conclusion is the non-circularity and linear hierarchy of a series of per se actual causes. The non-circularity of a series of per se causes is a direct consequence of the irreflexivity and transitivity of per se causation. Suppose A is the per se cause of B and in turn, B is the per se cause of A constituting circularity. But then by transitivity, which is generally assumed in any form of causation, A would have to be the per se cause of A, which contradicts the irreflexivity of per se causation just proved. Therefore, per se causes and their per se effects have to be arranged in a linear, but possibly branching ordering insofar as the cause of cause of an effect can also be the cause of another cause and through that also the cause of another effect. And as for instance, um, the same transformer house can power the pair of wires lightning, uh, lighting up this light, this light bulb here, and through a switchboard can also power another pair of wires lighting up a light bulb in the next room. In fact, this idea of a linear arrangement of per se efficient causes in a possibly downward branching tree structure is the rationale for Aquinas's remaining two distinctions between different modes and uh, between the different modes and causes mentioned earlier. Thus, the third distinction mentioned above, namely that between proximate and remote causes, should be pretty obvious. Once we realize that the relation of, of per se efficient causality on account of its necessary transitivity and irreflexivity, and on account of the fact that everything is either a cause or the effect of something else in the universe for whatever is causally disconnected is not in this universe, provides a total ordering of all things in this universe, such that in every per se causal relationship, everything is either an effect and not a cause, that is an ultimate effect, or both an effect and a cause, that is an intermediary cause, or possibly a cause of some further effect, but not an effect of anything that is a first cause in that particular per se causal relationship. That is to say, if its power to bring about or sustain its per se effect is insufficient on its own account, then an agent producing its per se effect must receive the energy um, it is missing from another cause acting as an intermediary cause channeling, as it were, that is receiving, transforming, and transmitting the power it receives from its cause, which therefore will be the proximate cause of this intermediary cause and the remote cause of the intermediary causes effect. For example, if the illumination of the screen in a classroom at Fordham is the proximate effect of its proximate cause, namely the overhead projector to be uh, properly denominated 
denominated as the illuminator, insofar as it is the per se cause of this particular effect, namely of the screen being illuminated. Then the transformer house on campus powering the illuminator is its remote cause. Um, in fact, it is the actual remote cause, which is shown by the fact that if the transformer house stopped operating, that is to say, if the projector stopped being powered, then it would cease to operate as well. And its effect, the illumination of the screen would go out of, uh, would go out of existence as well. That is the screen would immediately go dark. And of course, the transformer house is a per se actual cause only insofar as it is denominated from its causally relevant feature, namely supplying electric power for the working of the projector that is a power supply. But these considerations concerning the ordering of actual per se causes immediately give rise to the idea of a vertical hierarchy of causes in which the more remote cause is somehow more powerful and whose causality, therefore, extends to more than one intermediary cause in more than one chain of simultaneously co-acting causes, just as the transformer house powers not just the projector, but also the light, the computers, and the power plant in Niagara Falls powers not only, not just this transformer house on Fordham's campus, but many others all over New York City, which would apparently be a nice modern illustration of Aquinas' lastly mentioned discussion, distinction, sorry. And that would be the fourth distinction, namely that, the, uh, namely that between more or less universal and particular causes. However, I believe one should be careful in the inter interpretation of this distinction. In the first place, a universal cause, as Aquinas thinks about it, is certainly not a universal in its being, given, given that Aquinas rejects platonic universals. But in its causality, a, part, uh, a, universe, uh, a particular cause is the cause of only this particular effect, whereas a universal cause is a cause um, of several particulars of a given kind. However, an immediate consequence of this interpretation of the above mentioned demonstrated, uh, I'm sorry, the, the above demonstrated irreflexivity of per se efficient causality is that a universal cause of a given kind of particulars cannot be of the same kind. For otherwise, being the cause of all particulars of the same kind, it would have to be a cause of itself, which is impossible. Therefore, the universal cause of a species cannot be a member of the same species. It has to be a, a non-univocal cause. That is to say, the form by virtue of which it acts and produces and sustains its effects is not the same form that, brings, uh, that it brings about in its effects. So a universal cause of a species has to be outside of that species. That is important to notice. This is the rationale um, for um, Aquinas' um, entire conception of um, analogy of being and analogical um, uh, talk about divine essence um, in terms of the concepts that we um, first abstract from creatures. Okay, now, but without getting into that, um, I just wanted to uh, mention this as a further implication of this really important conclusion. Now, this is the reason um, 
that by talking about more or less universal causes, which Aquinas also explicitly identifies with more or less removed causes, he means not only the, that the causality of a more universal cause extends to more kinds, but also that the reason why its causality covers more kinds of effects is that it is causing them in a more universal respect. It has a power and a corresponding activity that can be, get, that can be received in so many different ways by different kinds of recipients. As the radiation of the sun received as heat in water, powers the water cycle around the globe, while received in the chloroplasts of plants, it powers most of the biosphere. In fact, this is the rationale and not some ancient superstition. Um, for one of Aquinas' favorite quotes from Aristotle's physics, homo generat hominem sol, man is generated by man and the sun, which without the insights of modern thermodynamics and ecology would sound like something coming from some totally unscientific, superstitious astrological speculations about the mysterious influence of celestial bodies on our lives. Whereas in terms of modern thermodynamics and ecology, yes, it is um, the energy of the sun that powers the biosphere. Okay, um, but this remark should also give us an opportunity to reflect on the stark contrast between the early modern mechanistic and the scholastic Aristotelian non-mechanistic notions of efficient causality. For in contemporary natural science, the idea of causality is no longer based on the human paradigm case of one billiard ball knocking into motion another. Indeed, in general, it is no longer the idea of diachronic event patterns that is the prevailing idea of causation. Although it, is still, uh, it still is in many philosophical speculations, see how mental events can cause physical events and vice versa. Rather, the more and more prevailing notion, especially in the intriguingly related fields of ecology, thermodynamics, and information theory, is the idea of the synchronic channeling of the flow of energy and information among systems of various scales and their subsystems. However, that idea is precisely the scholastic idea. Consider Aquinas' general description of the notion of a cause. A cause is from the being of which there follows the being of something else. Now, if we add to this that the notion of being for Aquinas is not just the static modern idea of being an element of the universal discourse, but the dynamic notion of being the actuality of all forms, where the notion of actuality is that of being in act, being active, being at work, which in Aristotle's Greek would be, idea, would be the idea of being an energeia, that is in a state of energy at work. That's, uh, that is the um, uh, etymology of the um, Greek, Greek word then we should not be surprised at the idea that our modern notions of energy and information will bear some striking resemblances to Aquinas' dynamic notions of being as act and, uh, and of form as that which informs, as that which determines the, the various ways in which things are, can be, and can be active or receptive, informing others and receiving information from others. But then looking at the being or actual existence of things in this way, 
and noticing that the things we are familiar with in our experience tend to go out of existence unless they receive the sustaining energy input of others and looking into some details of how the being or so being of things in the result of various chains of co-active per se actual causes that are necessarily arranged in a hierarchy of increasing universality, then we can appreciate Aquinas's idea that even if it may seem a logical possibility that such a chain of causes should go to infinity without there being an absolute first uncaused cause, it is not a physical possibility for two reasons. First, if all causes are intermediate causes, then they are, and then they all are just are just a series uh, of receivers, transformers, and transmitters of energy and information without any ultimate source for that energy and information. That is, they have nothing to receive, transform, and transmit. And second, in the series of per se causes, those higher up are more universal than those lower down. However, since there is a most universal form of energy or actuality, namely the very being of anything, there must be a universal cause of the causality and being of all others, which itself is not in any need of a further source of energy for its own being, because it is just as ipsum subsistence, self-sustaining being itself. To be sure, with this idea, we leave the realm of physics. However, and that is Aquinas' point, it is our ordinary physics, if understood well, that demands it. But knowing this much, and knowing that there can be only one thing whose essence is identical with its, essence, with its existence, we also know that everything else must depend for its existence on the simultaneous crea creative activity of their ultimate cause, creator omnium, that is God. 